0: and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app.
1: Hey, thanks so much for being here. Um, We, uh... Uh, We're going to do Did You Hear This at 11.20. We do it every day. If you're new to the show, thanks for checking us out. At 11.20 every day, we catch you up on all the big news stories, <clears throat> all the big headlines with a segment we call Did You Hear This? This morning, a frequent guest on the show is Kristen Bentz. I have known Kristen for years, and um, she's a retail analyst by trade, and uh, that's how she made her bones in the industry. But she has been so right on the money about the industry going into COVID, and even before that when we would talk. And it's always fascinating to me to, to Talk to someone who knows why things are happening or why things are going to happen, and she's been right a lot more often than she's ever been wrong, and uh, so we brought her on the show again this morning to talk about some of the current things that are happening, and one of the headlines, and this is of all places a Wall Street Journal headline, the U.S. consumer is starting to freak out out so i asked her is this something that should be happening
2: so we've gotten through record gas prices food inflation egg prices don't get me started um and now you have you know consumers are working two to three jobs in addition to their regular job and now we have 64 percent of americans living paycheck to paycheck right and most of that cohort are folks making a hundred thousand dollars or more
1: so that was the other – that was the kicker in that whole thing, that when you're talking about families that are living paycheck to paycheck, now you've got families that are making six figures that are in that boat, and that's very difficult. We're looking at gasoline prices that are approaching $4 a gallon again. People are saying it's going to get there. Um, I've been talking about this for a while now. China is opening back up. They have ended their restrictions and their lockdowns. It is a huge country with, uh, with a billion people, and they are going to have huge needs for fuel. Also, fuel, fuel oil. So we are seeing demand go up. And that's why one of the one of the reasons why America should be acting preemptively. And we aren't. There are bills in the Congress that would expand the ability. I think Ted Cruz has three bills now that are going up that would expand the exploration and drilling for our oil companies. This is the other part of where, again, where we have these political battles. Uh, President Biden has been uh, criticizing, been very critical of the obscene profits of the oil companies and how much money they're making. And then at the very same time, the president says, you know, we don't control the price of a barrel of oil. That's controlled by the markets. And largely it's the Saudis. It's the OPEC nations that control that because they control the production, which wasn't the case. A few years ago, we were energy independent, which is why for four straight years, we saw gasoline in under $3 per gallon. But we've given up that independence. But just using the rationale of the White House, we don't control the price of a barrel of oil. Therefore, we don't control gas prices. That's controlled by the market. Okay, well then, why are you critical of the oil companies and the obscene profits they're making? If you're upset about the profits they're making, Why aren't you demanding an increase in production that would drive down prices? You see, we went – and this is the fascinating thing just on the gas price thing. As a country, when all of this started happening, when Russia – and Ukraine went to war, and we were concerned about all the oil that comes out of Russia and the, and how it, what it's done to Europe and the prices there. Um, we went to the Saudis. We went to the UAE. We went to OPEC. We went to the Iranians, and we went to the Venezuelans, and we asked them all to keep production up. As a matter of fact, the president asked the Saudis not to decrease production until after the midterm elections, which they refused to do. Many of them wouldn't even take the phone call from the president. So he understands that increase in production is the only thing that drives down prices, which is why they falsely try to drive down prices by introducing millions of barrels of oil from the strategic reserve. They realize that the only way to have prices go down is when you have more production than you have need. And and they just refuse to do it. They refuse to do it in America. So you could have the oil companies, by the way, the very same oil barons. And I don't I don't say this to defend oil companies. It's just the logic behind an emotional answer like going after the oil companies, the very same oil companies that are now bilking you out of millions and billions of dollars with these obscene profits are the same oil companies that were selling you gasoline for under three dollars per gallon for four straight years. Same companies, same board of directors, same leadership, same everything. So why was it for four years they were selling you cheap gas? Now all of a sudden they want to stick it to you. Why is that? It's an easy criticism to just go after them and the obscene profits if you want to drive down the price, you got to drive up production and this White House refuses because everything they do flows through the prism of climate change, and they don't want drilling. The president has said it over and over again before he took the White House before he took office, and he said it during it in private gatherings all the while saying no there's plenty of chance for people to produce more and it just isn't isn't the way it is um So I talked with Kristen Benz about the recession. I want you to hear what she had to say about that.
2: This doesn't feel like 2008, like you're not losing your home. Right. And people that are losing jobs, it might take a little bit longer to find one. But it's not as, you know, death knell as 2008. I kind of want to call this a slow session. It's kind of like a slow recession Mm -hmm. (laughs) or a slow moving train wreck. So and, you know, I'm not giddy as I say this. It's just that it seems that that's how it feels.
1: So I talked with her about housing and she talked about Arizona in 2008 and uh, the positives for Arizona's economy. And I want to end this segment with that part of it. This is her talking about the positives and why she still has faith and she's optimistic about Arizona's uh, short and long term economy.
2: What anchors a city economically are meds and eds, okay? Hospitals and educational places, right? Colleges, schools. I see more new schools, more university extensions, more new hospitals being built out in Phoenix, Glendale, Maricopa County. We're thriving. So that's why I stay here. That's why I live here. Because economically, it's pretty hard to, you know, um, keep a, a city down or a county down that keeps in- innovating with medicine education and that's what we do
1: so that's the positive outlook and and she talked about real estate and how we've seen a slowing but it's not the kind of crash we saw in 08 and we had a little conversation about that just a wealth of information and it was good to talk with her about those things what we're going to do in a moment is the segment we call did you hear this it's how we catch you up on the biggest news stories and the biggest headlines of the day it's coming your way next
0: (laughs) Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 923 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, let's get you caught up
1: on the headlines.
0: We call it Did You Hear This? Did You Hear This? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories.
3: The Arizona Republican Party has a new chairman, and Jeff DeWitt says he understands why people are continuing to set aside political affiliations.
1: I know some people that are re-registered as independent, and for the most part, they are completely just fed up with the political system as a whole, with both parties. They're, they're not happy with the negativity. They're not happy with the rhetoric.
3: Will bringing independence to your side of the aisle be one of the most difficult challenges of 2024?
1: Yeah, I do. I think that's going to be the challenge for him. Now, I will say this. He is... <clears throat> I think he's the right person for this job because Jeff is an affable guy. Um, He is someone that gets along with a lot of people. He is. He's got a great personality. And I know that sounds silly, but he's going to have to mend some fences. And what he's going to have to do is reach out to independents that have kind of walked away from both parties. This has happened. But speaking from a Republican point of view, he's going to have to reach out to them in the sense that we understand. You don't people don't have to agree on everything on both sides of this conversation. But when you have more moderate Republicans that are being told by hardline Republicans, get out of my party, um, they're gladly leaving. Many of them are saying, I don't need you, I'll vote the way I vote, but I want nothing to do with you. In order to drag those people back in, they're going to have to be reassured that they're welcomed. Now, he's going to have to welcome them back, but he's also going to have to convince that hardline base that has become the leadership in the party for a long time, that they cannot win without moderate Republicans and independents. And the only way you're going to get them back is if you treat them with respect and not with contempt and if he can pull that off he's got a really good road ahead of him because the tailwind should be with republicans in 2024 but it's going to be a tough task
3: President of the Arizona Education Association, Marisol Garcia, wants to see more transparency regarding charter schools.
2: I, a parent, um, a taxpayer, a voter, have no idea how charter schools spend their money. I have no idea what they're teaching in those classes. I have no idea who's teaching in those classes. So the same type of accountability to which I need to have to my students, I believe the charter schools should have as well.
3: Is there a difference in knowing the curriculum in a public school versus a private or charter school? Yeah, there's there. well, I don't think there's any
1: difference when it comes to being a parent. If you're going to have your child in a school, you should have a right to know what's being taught and who's teaching it. I agree with her 100%. But the idea that there is now transparency and accountability in the public schools is absolutely false. Any parent can ask. Remember, that's the case. You can go and ask. That's one of the things that she went on to say. You should just go to a meeting. You should just go and ask. I just had a conversation with somebody on social media, and I sent them the links to the story where the National School Board Association wrote a letter to the White House, calling anybody who criticized them domestic terrorists and asking the FBI to start looking into people that are going to school board meetings. So that's the kind of atmosphere that a lot of parents were walking into when they did go to school board meetings and they dared to ask questions. So to to act as if parents have always had access and everything in public schools is transparent, it absolutely is not. I agree with her. It should be that way in charter schools. But when you say they have to have the same accountability, I would say right now they do you are listening to did you hear this we do it every day at this time to catch you up on the latest and the biggest headlines
3: principal deputy press secretary olivia dalton says that while president biden has cut the deficit by 1.7 trillion dollars the prior administration did the opposite
2: the deficit increased every single year under Donald Trump. His four years in office are responsible for twenty-five percent of our total national debt from the last two hundred and thirty years.
3: Why do the parties continue to play the blame game when it comes to debts? That's
1: politics. That's how it works. And uh, you know, um, there's uh, you're gonna hear from the you'll hear from the Trump administration. Well, they also had to deal with COVID, and a lot of that spending had to come with COVID, and they had to fix the military that had been had been depleted. So that that's gonna be their excuses and their answers to things. The funny thing about the Shell game of deficit reduction is this. We are still shot. We are still living at a deficit. We are still spending more money than we make, and we make record revenue. You, and again, you can fact check me on this. So, if the president has reduced the deficit by a trillion dollars, we are still trillions of dollars at a deficit, and we're still spending that way. We spend at a deficit. Again, it's the old adage. I, the story I said: if you are married and you have a fight with your, you're the one that's responsible for paying the bills. And you say to your significant other, you ran up a credit card debt of $5,000 last month. We can't live this way. And this month it was only $3,000. And the excuse was, I reduced my spending by $2,000. You're still not happy. We have got to get our fiscal house in order. And both parties are to blame.
3: CEO of KB Advisory Group, Kristen Bentz, says that Arizona's economy is doing well due to two big factors. What anchors
2: a city economically are meds and eds, hospitals and educational places, right? Because economically, it's pretty hard to keep a a city down or a county down that keeps innovating with medicine and education, and that's what we do.
3: Are you surprised to hear these factors having a major impact on our economy? Yeah, I was. It's one of those
1: things that when she's on with us, I always seem like we learn something. at What what experts like her, what they look at when they're assessing the value and the... um what would you say, the strength of an e- of an economy. And she says meds and eds. I would have never thought of that. But when she said it, it made perfect sense. And we are doing that. We have hospitals going up. Uh, they're investing in this community. Millions and billions of dollars in that. We also know that schools are, are, are all over, which is terrific. Higher education, new ways to learn. So I think she's on to something, and I was glad she did it. Uh, Great job, Julia. That is, did you hear this for another day? We will do it again tomorrow at 1120. What we are going to do in a moment is we're going to talk about two Phoenix police officers um, that were uh, that were. Being investigated for criminal activity for abuse of, uh, of of use of force, that it was excessive use of force, and was it going to be charged criminally? A grand jury refused to indict, so there will not be criminal charges. We're going to go into some of the details of why this happened next. Thanks for being here with the backdrop of uh, what happened in Memphis, that horrible killing in Memphis um, uh, by five police officers. By the way, an update on that is now they are actually writing news stories talking about how the how Memphis had lowered its standards for police officers. And uh, they're saying that a couple of these officers um, were uh, hired when the standards were lowered. Now, you can't blame this all on that. But again, this is part of the what do we do with policing conversation? It says officers with troubling backgrounds hired after Memphis Police Department lowered standards. And it goes into the detail of what these officers, they had now been hired to be law enforcement, which is people don't understand what a high standard they're held to, but also what a high standard um, of of um, they're held to. Even to be hired, I think, and I don't know this number to be 100% correct, but I think the last I was told by somebody from Phoenix PD about recruiting is that Phoenix PD ends up hiring only about 10% of its applicants because there's something where, whether it's a prior drug use or a polygraph test or something, there's usually something that gets in the way of them being hired. Um, So again... Um, It is what it is. But with the backdrop of Memphis, here's the story. Um, No charges against two Phoenix officers in October excessive force event. And this is written at the Arizona Republic. And it's talking about this quick trip where the two officers, um, Eddie Becerra and Nicholas Beck, entered the quick trip to arrest this guy. The grand jury refused to indict because they didn't believe that there was a likelihood that there would be a conviction, even though there is body cam video that shows these officers striking somebody, kicking him while he's on the ground and then again while he was in handcuffs. Especially when the handcuffs are on, that's usually when, you know, that's when the rules change. Um, But what, is taken into account as my in my belief here is that thirty seconds before this encounter happened, this suspect had fired at the police officers in an unprovoked, unnecessary attack. One of the bullets struck the, the that uh, you know right next to your windshield, that riser where your windshield where your door closes against the riser on the driver's side. It, it hit the frame of the vehicle there. You're talking inches from that police officer's head. So obviously emotionally charged, not making excuses, but emotionally charged in that scenario. This is the part of the uh, understanding Because the police chief, uh, Chief Sullivan, uh, made a statement and said that behavior does not align itself with our policy, and I'm paraphrasing, and the way in our culture. This is not what we want. There is a difference between a policy violation and a criminal violation. And I would, again, submit to you, being in all fairness, and and maybe you disagree with me, but in all fairness, had the tables been turned, if this were you, wouldn't you want a little bit of grace because this guy just— tried to shoot you in the head. And I think that's what the grand jury was doing. I used an analogy earlier. We've often seen those courtroom shows where people attack convicted people. So somebody goes on trial for murder or rape or some horrible crime and family members are in the court during sentencing and the person's been found guilty. They're just about to be sentenced and a family member lunges and attacks the prisoner who is shackled. And I don't believe that they are charged to the level with crimes to the level if this were an attack on the street, just a fistfight. They take the circumstances into consideration. And I think that's what happened here. There is an ongoing fight. There are two of them. One of them is about uh, staffing and, you know, the defund the police movement. The other is about qualified immunity. Now, qualified immunity is that a police officer cannot be um, civilly sued for something that they do on the job. And there are people that believe that that needs to be removed after George Floyd was killed or what happened in um – What happened in uh, Memphis, that those officers not only should be held criminally accountable, but they should also be uh, the ability should be to be sued. Well, Lindsey Graham has floated an idea where, and I think this is already the case, where agencies are responsible for the civil side when their officers misbehave, when their officers break the law, when their officers get violent. And what it does is it motivates the cities and the the counties and the states, whatever, you know, it, it motivates them to make sure the training is done right, that the protocol is always adhered to, because they're on the hook for the liability. And the reason why we can never lose qualified immunity is, I want you to think about this and the unintended consequences. If a police officer has to decide when entering a situation that he or she could possibly be sued for what's about to happen, why would they do their job? I want you to think about this. Men and women that take this job, they have family members who sometimes are not thrilled that they do the job they do because it's such a dangerous job. You literally kiss that person goodbye wondering if you're ever going to see them again. You understand that there is a real chance that they're going to be severely injured or killed in the line of duty and it's something that family members always have to live with in that career. It's a high-stress job. The divorce rate among cops, you know, couples where one of them or both of them are officers is very high. And uh, so it's a very difficult job. You, you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You witness things. You witness the most horrible things that human beings can do to each other on a daily basis. Now you mean to tell me that a police officer has to go into a situation wondering if they're going to get sued. I'm going to give you a scenario based on a civilian observation. We know, most people know, that the most dangerous situation that officers find themselves in very often are domestic violence situations because, generally speaking – They're there to break up a fight or to to intervene, but the spouse that's the reporting party generally doesn't want to have charges pressed against the spouse that's been violent or whatever else. And so now you've got the entire family against the police. It's already emotionally charged, and it can overheat and overflow that emotion, can very quickly. So with that in mind, a police officer goes – And in the state of Arizona and many other places, if there is obvious signs of violence, then somebody has to go to jail. It is no longer I don't want to press charges. It's the city or the state that presses those charges. So then a police officer Says I have to place you under arrest. And now it gets heated. And now you have the reporting spouse that starts to come after the police officer and um, accidentally or, or not even accidentally in the scuffle, one of the parties gets injured, cut on the head, whatever. Now that officer has to go through an investigation for use of force. But now what about the civil liability? What about that family suing that cop and that cop having to hire a lawyer and pay for that lawyer his or herself and, or that police officer then wondering, are, is someone going to get a judgment against me where they're going to be entitled to part of my pension? Why would I get involved? Why would I intervene in somebody else's life? Because cops understand that their job is risking their lives on a daily basis, but they shouldn't be risking their livelihood or the livelihood of their family. Now you've got a cop that's thinking about uh, about their wife or their their husband or their children and saying, if I do this or if something happens, I could lose everything. And so could my family. What's the incentive to do that job and to keep doing that job? The answer is nothing. Not only that, now you've got officers that are less likely to engage in a situation, and you have officers that won't do the job anymore because they don't want the liability. They don't want to have to buy the insurance or whatever it's going to take. So for everybody out there that thinks cops should be held civilly responsible and they think that that would solve a lot of the problems, the unintended consequences to public safety is immense, absolutely immense. Coming up in a moment, um, we're going to finish up with a topic we've been talking about frequently this morning, and it has to do with school choice. There's a great interview that was done with the head of the Arizona Education Association president, Navy 15 and we'll let you hear a little bit more of what was said and why I completely disagree with the idea of getting rid of the school choice that we have right now. So we'll do that in a moment. Hey, thanks for being here. I think that uh, anytime there is a debate that's going on and people are making some demands and changing their minds about things and getting upset about things, <clears throat> you have to consider why. Because many times they're justified in their, in being upset when it comes to schools. I just had a conversation with somebody on on uh, Twitter again, um, and I forwarded the story about the National School Board Association calling parents domestic terrorists. They used that phrase, and they uh, they wanted the FBI to be brought in to investigate parents, <clears throat> Scott dale Unified Dis- School District, one of the fathers of the president of the school board, um, was doxing parents. Now, they said it was going to be used for anything nefarious, but they were out trying to find out bad stories, whether it was divorces or bankruptcies or otherwise, of people that were disagreeing with them at meetings. Um, their parents in Peoria, I've talked about Heather Rooks, and uh, there's a story about her today, a national story of how she is now on the school board. This is a parent that was so disgruntled about what was happening and the way she was being treated. She She ran for the school board and won. Now she sits on the school board and she's starting to expose some of the things in the curriculum she disagrees with. And many parents agree. So whether you agree with those parents or not on the expansion of school choice, you have to understand why they're doing it. The last social media post that I responded to was uh, was uh, you know uh, there's two things that make me laugh when you have an argument with somebody, and one of them one of them is when they dismiss you out of hand. Um, they uh, the the tweet said that parents have ample opportunity to be heard. Mm, No, they don't. If they did, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. And I sent him the link to that story. The other is when people accuse you of being unprepared or not knowing what you're talking about. There was a woman that tweeted at me and said, please learn how to read. So I, in true Mike Broomhead fashion, said, could you please use smaller words? I disagree with you, so obviously I'm too dumb to read your big words. Send me smaller words, and I haven't heard back. My point is I am neither uninformed – Um, you can call me wrong. I'm calling you wrong. You have every right to call me wrong, but you have to acknowledge why people are upset. People don't feel like there's accountability. And when parents dare to ask, why are you doing that? They're not getting answers. They're not getting satisfactory answers. I've had battles with schools. I told the story before Um, my youngest, my youngest was in elementary school and a kid used the word rape, not saying he was going to rape her, but talking about rape to her. And um, it happened a couple of times. She went to the teacher. We called a meeting with the principal and there were two boys that were involved in this conversation. Let's say Tim and John, Timmy and Johnny, and uh, we went and had a meeting with the principal and sat down, very nice introduction, and we said, you know, we know what Timmy said to Johnny. We want to know what's being done with it, and the principal said, wait a minute, hang on a minute. We can't use the boys' names. We're going to call them boy number one and boy number two. I said, but we already know who the boys' names are. You're not telling us something we don't know. We know who it is. Well, we're not going to use those names. So that's ridiculous. And so we talked about it. I I used their name again. And so she got very upset with me. And I said, I know who the boys are. You know who the boys are. You're not. I said, first of all, is this a law or is this school policy? This is school policy. I said, well, the word rape has been used. They wouldn't tell us what actions were taken against these students. They wouldn't even say these kids names. And I said, this involves my little girl and the word rape. I think I have a right to go as well. The only thing I can tell you is it's been handled. Well, that's not good enough for parents. And if schools want to treat parents that way, now the parents can take their child and their money and go somewhere else. So now the schools are going to have to start catering to the needs of parents. All parents, rich parents, poor parents, uh, white parents, Hispanic parents, black parents, doesn't matter who you are. And if they don't, you can go somewhere else. Someone explain to me how that's a bad thing. It just isn't. You just don't have control anymore. All right, social media users, at Broomhead K T A R on Twitter, Mike Broomhead, all one word, on Instagram. That's how you can keep in touch between shows. We'll be back tomorrow morning starting at just after 8 o'clock like we always do. I look forward to talking with you a little bit tomorrow. Please keep in touch between shows. Hope you've got a great rest of your day planned. We'll be back at 8 tomorrow morning. Until then, have a great day, and God bless.